here. Well, welcome here, everyone. Glad that uh, you're able to uh, to make it out. I know that uh, the last session of the day, that's uh, it's a tough time slot because uh, there's been a lot of learning happening already. And uh, so I know that uh, you know when I frankly when I saw the 2:30 time slot, I thought, well, I hope everyone is still uh, uh, is still sticking around. But it looks like people are. So I'm very glad to see uh, people here. And uh, if we get a few more coming in along the way, that's uh, that's great. I'll just sort of obviously continue on. But uh, uh, that's uh, it's good that we that you're able to uh, to join us. Um, just want to talk a little bit about uh, who I am and uh, just a bit about my background, just so that we've got some context. And uh, I will let you know that I've intentionally uh, tried to make sure I leave some time in my presentation for questions and answers, because I know that's frankly where, where it tends to get the most interesting. And uh, so I will make sure to, uh, to leave some time at the end to, uh, so that if you have any questions, anything you want to ask about, you, you will get that opportunity. So uh, I uh, work on a part-time basis for the uh, Frontier Centre for Public Policy, that is a think tank that's based in Winnipeg, although uh, it does uh, research work uh, uh, across uh, Western Canada in particular. And uh, one of the fields that the Frontier Centre focuses on is education policy, and uh, I'm uh, their main education policy person. But I should make it clear that uh, that's not the main thing I do with my time, because uh, I find that when I've done presentations like this, uh, one of the questions that people often wonder is that if I don't, if I'm not clear about my background, they wonder, well, does this guy know what it's really like in a classroom? Does he have any practical experience? The main thing I do with my time is I'm a full-time teacher uh, in a public school. Uh, I currently teach uh, high school uh, social studies, although in the past I've also taught at the middle years level, uh, particularly at the grade five level. And so I've experienced uh, both with younger students and with older students. And so much of what I talk about here is stuff that I actually attempt to do in my own classroom. And so uh, that is what the, the main thing that I do with my time. Uh, on my initial slide here, I just put some information about, uh, for those of you who want to get a hold of me in the future, I will, of course, hang around afterwards after the session is done for anyone who wants to talk to me. Uh, but other ways to get a hold of me, uh, I have a, my email address is up there. I have a personal website. You can also go to the Frontier Center website. And then uh, if you're so inclined, you can follow me on Twitter. And so I've got, uh, I've got my Twitter account there. And uh, so there we go. So let's talk a little bit about uh, 21st century learning, 21st century education. This is one of those things that, uh, you know, education, there's a lot of buzzwords. And 21st century learning is one of those buzzwords. Uh, I'm not sure how long 21st century education is going to be the buzzword uh, because we're getting pretty far into the 21st century. So, uh, but for the time being, uh, we're, we're going to talk about uh, 21st century learning. And I just want to share with you uh, a few quotes that, uh, uh, that we tend to see. And these are, these are pretty common quotes, especially the first uh, couple of ones that I want to show you. Uh, the world is changing faster than ever before. You know, we're in a time of change, so we need to change right along with it as far as our school systems go. Another quote, we must prepare our students for jobs that do not even exist yet. So instead of teaching them how to function in the world as we see it today, we need to prepare them for the world of tomorrow. And we don't even know what jobs it is, so we need to you know, teach them some critical thinking skills that go beyond anything that we have today. Uh, those are two pretty common quotes. Uh, the next quote is one that I took verbatim from a school division website, and I'm, I'm not naming particular school divisions here, uh, but uh, here is one. Uh, educators become activators of learning, creating a 21st century culture, and providing access to the supports and resources that learners need to succeed. So you see the shift there that it's more about teachers activating learning, providing support, sort of being more off to the side, sort of that, uh, that focus. Another quote I took from another, uh, another website, to reimagine education 
Teacher training requires a paradigm shift that goes beyond teaching students answers and instead teaching them how to ask the right questions, evaluate information critically, and communicate effectively. So those are some statements that are often made regarding 21st century learning. And what does it look like in practice? What are some of the things that if, if you've got a school or a school division that, you know, we're going to focus on 21st century learning, what are some of the things you might expect to see in such a, in such a school? Well, here's a phrase that, uh, this is one of the newer ones, uh, defronted classrooms. This one's been around for not too long, but uh, this is the idea that, uh, you know, we need to redesign classrooms so that, you know, we don't want to have an obvious front. We don't want to have the teacher standing at the front explaining stuff to students. We'd rather have it, you know, where the students are working in groups and pods and we're sort of shift things around and such. And so often that's called defronting uh, the classroom. And so I, I see that phrase a little bit more often nowadays. Uh, teachers as learning facilitators, the shift away from teachers being subject matter experts and knowing content and sharing that content with students, and rather we see this emphasis on teachers as being learning facilitators. Project-based learning, that we learn by projects, by doing, by hands-on. And I should be clear, I'm not saying that each of these is necessarily bad. I, I think that, frankly, most of these in moderation can have some value. Um, but I'm talking here about sort of where the, these become the predominant paradigm. Uh, inquiry and discovery learning, this is a really big uh, these days in virtually every province that we want students to inquire, to ask their own questions, and, you know, teachers are sort of the architect of learning, guiding them along as they, uh, uh, as they move to, uh, to greater heights of, of learning. Um, heavy use of technology and personal devices, uh, moving as far as you can towards sort of a one-to-one -one device system so that every student, if at all possible, has a device or at least access to one, and so the students are spending a lot of time on iPads because, again, this is about personalized individual learning. We want to give them those, uh, those tools. Uh, student group work, again, pretty straightforward that that is uh, something we often uh, see. In an interdisciplinary approach to subjects, this idea that, you know, let's move away from uh, subjects being, you know, in their own little categories and let's as much as possible bring them together. So instead of separating social studies and science and ELA and math, let's do some inter interdisciplinary work so that maybe we don't even know where the barriers between subjects begin and end, that interdisciplinary focus. And less emphasis on memorization. After all, the world is changing so fast, what's the point of memorizing a bunch of outdated facts? You know, it's, it, the world is changing so quickly, we need to rather teach them how to think, teach them how to look things up. And so that way they will be equipped uh, in the 21st century so that instead of memorizing a bunch of outdated facts, we rather equip them with the critical thinking skills that they need. So, again, you're going to see these two uh, to various degrees, but I think it's safe to say that if you're focusing on 21st century learning, these are the types of things that you're going to see in a school that is emphasizing uh, this, uh, this philosophy. Now, I want to share a quote, and the quote is this. The older teacher thought first of his subject matter, let it get learned. The good teacher of the newer view well understands how it is the process itself, especially as socially conditioned, that educates, and he makes every effort to get and keep the process going on such terms as will cause it to gain an ever more certain and intelligently directed momentum. This is his chief aim. That attained, the rest follows. Now, we look at this quote, and it certainly sounds an awful lot like the things that I was just listing there. It looks an awful lot like 21st century learning. The only thing is that this guy said it. William Hurd Kilpatrick, in his book, Remaking the Curriculum, 
curriculum, 1936. That quote is actually over 80 years old. The point I'm making is that the things we hear in 21st century learning, these emphases that we're seeing, actually aren't that old. Sorry, aren't actually that new. They've been around for quite a while. The, if you read Kilpatrick's writings as a prime example, you will see the same types of emphasis on project-based learning, interdisciplinary, all of those sorts of things. You know, the teacher getting away from the front of the classroom and the students sort of activating learning differently. Here's another quote from Kilpatrick. For teaching purposes, this older outlook can customarily organize these items logically into subjects and assign for the daily lesson some convenient subdivision for the subject. In this discussion, this atomistic view of objectives with its logical order of learning by separated subjects in long-range advance of actual use is totally and wholly rejected as thoroughly misleading and mischievous, being in fact the antithetical opposite of the best available conceptions both of the life process and of learning. In contrast with such an atomistic and static conception of objectives, the aim here is to set forth dynamic objectives inherently related to life as a process, and therefore to natural and useful learning. So once again, as we can see, because this is William Hurd Kilpatrick again, that the ideas that we see in 21st century education were actually pretty common in the 20th century. They're not terribly new. So how new is 21st century learning? Well, here's a quote. Today we live in a state of constant change. It is a technology-rich world where communication is instant and information is immediately accessible. The way we interact with each other personally, socially, and at work has changed forever. Knowledge is growing and information is changing extremely quickly, creating new possibilities. This is the world our students are entering. Now that one is a recent quote. That is from the BC Ministry of Education. British Columbia is moving very much in the direction of these things, and you'll see that in a couple other quotes that I'm going to share. And there is a reason, one of the reasons I'm using BC in a couple of my examples is that some of their changes are the most recent. And so they're making some substantial changes to their curriculum to reflect these things. That the world is changing so fast that we, instead of sort of focusing on, on specific content knowledge, rather we need to teach transferable skills. Another quote, am I wrong in thinking that education is changing now more than ever before? Life is vastly more complex in detail, and we are far more tied up with ourselves about us, even to our most distant neighbors. Sounds like a cutting-edge quote regarding the Internet, except there it's William Hurd Kilpatrick again, uh, except that one is from 1925, so no, that one is over 90 years old. I frankly think that for a lot of the 21st century learning advocates, um, they should just simply copy some of Kilpatrick and just give the reference there, and you don't have to make new stuff. You can just simply reference him uh, most directly because you see the you see the influence. So why am I concerned about this direction in 21st century learning that doesn't put enough emphasis on content and knowledge? Well, this is a quote that I think sums up where I'm really concerned about where this is going. And again, this is from the BC Ministry of Education recent, that I recently accessed from their website. What and how we teach our students has been redesigned to provide greater flexibility for teachers while allowing space and time for students to develop their skills and explore their passions and interests. The deep understanding and application of knowledge is at the center of the new model, as opposed to the memory and recall of facts that previously shaped education around the globe for many decades. That's a pretty good summary of where much of this is going, that it's putting it as an either-or. It's putting it as, you know what, instead of focusing on the memory and recall of facts, which are going to become outdated, 
Instead, we need to focus on deep understanding and application of knowledge. My contention, very simply, is this, is that you cannot put these in opposition to each other, that you actually need content knowledge, lots of facts, memorization, practice, specific skills. These things are essential if you want to have any deep understanding and any application of knowledge. And so why I believe focusing on content knowledge is important, I'm going to make three arguments, and I'm going to back each of them up with specific research studies. Uh, first, content knowledge is important because it is essential for reading comprehension. If we want our students to be effective readers, they need to know a lot of stuff. Second, it makes critical thinking possible. You will not think critically about a topic that you know nothing about. Simple as that. Third, it empowers students from low socioeconomic backgrounds. Again, the students that benefit the most from significant content knowledge come from poor families, poor homes, the students that need this most of all. So how do I back these up? Well, let's talk a little bit about reading comprehension and uh, the process of how students learn how to read. And one of the challenges is that, you know, we look at reading and we often think of it as a transferable skill. And there is a little bit of truth to that, because obviously, if you've learned how to read and you're a fluent reader, you can pick up a different book on a different topic and you can probably read it. But in terms of the process of initially learning how to read, there's actually two things you need to be able to do, not just one. We, we spent a lot of time focusing on decoding the words. And whether, and I'm not going to get into the phonics and the whole language debate here, whichever one you hold to, or, a or if it's the balanced literacy, a blend of those two, those tend to focus on the decoding of the words. What do the words actually say? But that's not enough. You need to be able to decode the text, absolutely, but you also need to be able to comprehend what you read. You need to understand what you are reading. And so what I'm saying is that reading is not simply an abstract transferable skill. Reading ability is closely linked to background knowledge. And so the more you know about the topic of an article or book, the more likely you are able to read and understand it. And let me give an example. When I used to teach grade five, I had to do uh, what we call uh, running records, where you, re you have students read uh, an article at a specific reading level, and then you, you, know, you tick along to see how they're doing with their reading, and then you give them sort of an evaluation of how their reading is doing. And then we sort of find out where their reading level is at, and then we try to get them a level book that matches that. You know, usually letters A to Z, and use the, the Fountas and Pinnell leveling system, or whichever one is still used nowadays. That that's what we, uh, that's what we tend to, uh, that's, that's how it works. I noticed something very striking, that when students were reading an article that was something they didn't know anything about, they didn't get it. They couldn't comprehend it. They couldn't get the comprehension questions. Now, they could do the basic decoding. They could read the words, but they had no clue. I remember the article, I think, was about, uh, 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 was about uh, something that happened in China that they knew nothing about. And then one of the other articles, same reading level, was about a sports uh, activity. Well, easy reading comprehension. They could read that, and they could do far better. Why? Because they knew something about the topic at hand. And so you need to actually know something about the topic. The more words you have to look up, the less likely you are to be able to read the article or be able to comprehend it. And so research evidence strongly backs up these points. And what I'm going to do for each of these here is I'm just going to take a quick snapshot of what does the research evidence actually show? So I'm making the claim that in order to be effective readers, you need to decode the text and comprehend it. 
I'm saying that reading is not simply a transferable skill, that it's linked to background knowledge, and that if you know about the topic at hand, you're more likely to be reading the, uh, be able to read the article or book. Logically then, if those things are true, you need substantial content knowledge in order to develop your reading skills effectively. So here's one research study. This is by Donna Recht and Lauren Leslie. Uh, from the Journal of Educational Psychology, and I've, I made sure to bring copies. I have hard copies of each of these research studies with me. If any of you want to take a look at these afterwards, they're also available online. Uh, it's not hard; they're not hard to access. And uh, what uh, what they did in their study was they broke up a group of uh, junior high students into different uh, uh, into different uh, uh, groups, and they found that when they were reading an article about baseball, that's the topic they chose that the students who were poor readers, the ones who were low on their reading their reading level, the ones who weren't very good at decoding words, if they knew a lot about baseball, they were able to read the article and outperform the good readers, the ones who had the technical reading skills, but didn't know much about baseball. And so what the research study indicated was that if you knew something about the topic you're reading about, you could read and comprehend the article. If you didn't know about it, you had great difficulty reading that article. And so, again, that's one research study. Um, a second research study, this one, I'm not going to read all the names on here, but this is from the Journal of Educational Psychology, 1989. And they did a similar exercise, and in this one they had different reading groups, and they separated students based on, in this case, they did it based on students who had written IQ tests, who the students who had had a lower IQ and a high IQ. And the key finding, when reading an article about soccer, Low IQ students who knew a lot about soccer substantially outperformed high IQ students who knew little about soccer. So in terms of comprehending the article and answering the questions and thinking critically about it, the students who had the background knowledge were able to outperform the students who didn't, even though the students who didn't have the background knowledge that they're being compared with uh, had a technical, you know, at a higher IQ. So it goes to show that IQ certainly is not, uh, certainly not everything. Um, a third research study, this one is from the International Electronic Journal of Elementary Education, 2011, a bit more recent, and uh, it's titled The Effects of Syntactic and Lexical Complexity on the Comprehension of Elementary Science Texts. And basically they had third grade students uh, reading the text, and what they found in their study when they were breaking them up into their different groups is that the primary thing that affected their ability to read the textbook was their background knowledge about whatever topic it was they were reading about, not the text complexity. And the problem is that in schools nowadays, we're so eager to move away from content that we like the scientific precision of running records and leveling books, and we have this idea that, you know what, we're going to get a whole bunch of books just sitting on our bookshelf, and when we do our silent reading time, students are going to read the correct level, and then they're going to progress because they're reading at their level. Wrong. Because the most important thing is actually, what do they know about the topic at hand? Um, I remember, uh, again, back to grade five, when I, I taught there, I, one of the novel studies that I did, and I did whole class novel studies, uh, Anne of Green Gables. Now, if you've read Anne of Green Gables, the original, the immediate reaction that I would get from people is that there's no way grade fives are going to be read that. Have you seen? Like, it's like 300 pages long. It's pretty in-depth. But the students were able to do it. Now, again, the ones who are weaker at reading, yes, there were some supports I had to put in place, and I did have some simpler versions available, but for the vast majority of the students, 
once we'd sort of explain, you know, once I'd give them some background knowledge about some of the key things in the book, they were able to read it because the top, because the book was interesting and it, re- it connected to some things that they that they had some background knowledge about. And so again, reading comprehension is made possible when you have background knowledge. Now, what about critical thinking? You know, again, we, we have this emphasis nowadays that we want students to think critically. Now, I'm all in favor of critical thinking. I think that you should be able to think critically. I hope you're thinking critically about what I'm saying here. And uh, it's important to evaluate. But what I'm going to say is just like reading, critical thinking is not an abstract skill. Students can only think critically when they know something about the topic at hand. So let me give an example. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about engineering. I I know just about nothing about engineering. You know, I, I have no idea how these engineers calculate to make sure that the bridge isn't going to fall down. But obviously, they know how to do it. Now, suppose you were to give me one of the an advanced engineering article from one of the technical engineering magazines, and I was asked to read it, and then let's think critically about it. You know how much critical thinking I could do about that engineering article? Pretty much nothing. It doesn't matter how many transferable critical thinking skills I have, and yes, I know how to find the main idea, and I know how to sort of look for the keywords. I'm not going to, I'm not a terribly useful person to give you uh, some critical thinking about uh, an engineering article because, not because I'm stupid, at least I hope not, it's because I lack the background knowledge. I lack the, the, the knowledge I need in order to think critically about it. Now let me go to a topic that I know something a little more, uh, about quite a bit more, such as uh, uh, Canadian history, since that is one of the subjects that I teach. Well, a student who lacks background knowledge about the key provinces and individuals involved in the Confederation of 1867 is unlikely to do much critical thinking about why Confederation happened the way it did. I mean, let's be candid here. If you don't know which provinces were involved, and if you don't know about Johnny McDonald and George H. Cartier and George Brown, if you don't know any of that, and now you're going to think critically and give me some analysis as to why Confederation happened the way it did and how we think things should change as a result... That's unlikely. Now, maybe they would be able to do it, but you know what they're going to have to do first? Learn a whole lot about Confederation of 1867. They need all that background information. Um, I teach history. That is one of the key subjects I teach. I teach both Canadian history, which is a mandatory course in Manitoba, and I teach American history, which is an optional course. And in both cases, it's amazing for me to watch the students as they, the more they know, the more they can think critically. You know, like with American history in particular, with all the events happening in the United States, uh, when students know about how you know the U.S. became a country and they know about the history of slavery and they know about segregation and they know about all these things uh, and they know about the know-nothings, the immigration issues in the 1800s, they can give me some pretty good critical analysis of current events in the United States because they know these things. And but. It, it's not a, but it, it, if I were just to start my class saying, okay, everyone, let's do some critical thinking, some deep analysis of these, uh, of these current events, they wouldn't be able to do so because they don't know anything about American history prior to taking the course. Uh, that's just simply the reality of it. You need background knowledge. So knowledge does not guarantee critical thinking. I know that some, one of the responses people will give is that, okay, I know someone who knows everything and they don't think critically. They, that's true. Being knowledgeable doesn't guarantee you can think critically. But what it does do is it makes critical thinking possible. Critical thinking is specific to the topic at hand. And you cannot think critically if you don't know anything about the topic. It's impossible without knowledge. 
So it doesn't guarantee critical thinking, uh, but it makes it possible. Uh, the reality is, is that ignorant people don't really think critically, you know, about whatever topic they're discussing, you know, and I'm sure some of you have experienced this, you're talking with a little group and then someone joins in and they're giving their opinion and it's obvious they don't know anything about the topic. I don't think it happens very often where we go, wow, that's insightful. Like you're, that's, that's, you're, you're probably thinking, you know, buddy, you, you don't know anything about the topic. Like why don't you go read some stuff and then let's come talk because you don't have the background knowledge. So therefore, it remains important for students to memorize facts and have knowledge in their heads. And yes, knowledge changes, facts change and all that, but they don't change quite as quickly as some, as some people say. You need to know stuff and you need to know lots of things if you want to think critically. Now, what about my, so let's talk a bit about some research uh, evidence that backs this up. This is from Helfenstein and Saraluma. This is from Psychological Research, uh, mainline journal. And uh, what they found in their, uh, their study is that being able to solve a problem in one domain or topic area does not necessarily mean that someone can solve a similar problem in a different domain. Specific content knowledge is essential to problem solving. That's what they found in their research study. And again, that was published in a main, I'm, I'm giving mainline peer-reviewed research. Uh, this was published in Psychological Research in, uh, in 2006. A second research study from Perkins and Salomon titled, Are Cognitive Skills Context-Bound? And this is a direct quote from their article. In the synthesis, general cognitive skills do not function by somehow taking the place of domain-specific knowledge, nor by operating the same way from domain to domain. In other words, critical thinking is highly context-dependent. You need to know something about the topic at hand. And so just because a student can now think critically and analyze something in my American history class, that doesn't guarantee that they can automatically think critically about the theory of evolution in science class. There are some skills that I hope transfer, but the reality is that before you could think critically about that science topic, you need to know about that science topic first. Otherwise, you're just, frankly, taking a guess. Uh, a third research study, this is from Jill Larkin, along with other articles from Science uh, Magazine, uh, titled Expert in Novice Performance in Solving Physics Problems. And now, this is an interesting one, because it answers that one of those questions that comes up is that, well, okay, maybe the student doesn't know much about the topic, but that's what the Internet is for. We can look it up. Hyperlinks, Google, we can just sort of click on what we need to click, and therefore we can uh, make sure that we make up whatever knowledge deficit there is. Well, you know who benefits the most from looking things up? Who learns the most from looking it up? Experts. People who already know lots about the topic because they know what they're looking for. They know uh, how to weed out faulty information a lot more quickly than a novice. And so it's experts, subject matter experts benefit more from looking things up than novices do. Making additional information readily accessible is less helpful than developing domain-specific expertise. And so... Yes, the Internet is a great thing. I use it all the time, and I look stuff up. But I find that's true for me as well. If I know a lot about the topic, looking it up is a lot more useful for me than if I don't. It doesn't mean it's useless for those who don't know much about the topic, but you're far more likely to be heading down rabbit trails because if they don't know anything, they might be misled by anything that they see on the Internet or wherever else they happen to look things up. So what about my third point that I made, this idea of empowering disadvantaged students, students who come from uh, uh, from poor backgrounds? Well, 
Basic points. Low socioeconomic status, that's the official term here, or SES students, enter school with a more limited vocabulary and shallower knowledge base than high SES students. And it's not too hard to figure out why this is the case. Because if you're from a, a rich home or an upper middle class home, you know what the parents are probably doing with their kids? They're uh, providing tutors if necessary. They're spending time with them on their homework because often those parents are educated themselves and so they're able to help with their homework. Uh, oh, they're going to museums. You know, they have the money. They can do that. They're going on educational trips together. And so those students come to school and they've already got a pretty decent vocabulary. Now, you contrast that with a student from a poor home where their parents aren't able to do these things and where they don't have, they don't acquire that background knowledge. And so the unfortunate reality is that you have this imbalance. And so the early grades are the essential time to impart specific knowledge to all students. The people who benefit the most, the students who benefit the most from lots of specific content are students from low SES homes because they're not acquiring that at home because their parents aren't able to provide it. So the only place that is going to provide it is school. And if it's all project-based, interdisciplinary, inquiry, learning, starting in grade one, they're not going to be able to learn a whole lot. At least they're not going to be able to learn what these students from more advantaged homes are. And so the low SES students benefit the most from content-rich instruction since they gain knowledge that they would not have received otherwise. They would not have uh, received this knowledge. Uh, they would not have gained this knowledge if they had uh, not received it in, uh, in. If they didn't receive it at school, and so a simple way to put it: the more a student knows, the more they are able to learn. The more you know, the more you can learn. This is, I mean, again, think of yourselves. All of you have expertise in some area. And, you know, let's say that expertise is in farming and you're now evaluating a new farming technique, a new piece of machinery. You're probably able to acquire some new knowledge in that pretty quickly because you know how to weed out the faulty info. You know exactly where to look to get the new info. Or maybe you have, ex you have expertise in an academic area. Whatever that area is, the more you know about it, the more you can acquire. And so if we're not, you know, specific, if we're not clear about making sure that students, that students acquire that background knowledge, well then, uh, we've got uh, we've got a problem, and so does the research evidence back this up? I would suggest that it does. So this is an article from Erica Hoff uh, from Child Development, and the article is called "The Specificity of Environmental Influence: Socioeconomic Status Affects Early Vocabulary Development Via Maternal Speech," and this is a direct quote from her article. In conclusion, common belief and scientific evidence are in agreement that children from more advantaged homes have more advanced language skills than children of the same age from less advantaged homes. So you have a knowledge deficit. Students from less advantaged homes are coming to school with a disadvantage because they don't have the knowledge base. Now let's say that the school does not focus in the early grades and providing lots of content knowledge. What's going to suffer? Their reading levels. Because they don't acquire the content knowledge, they fall further and further behind. The students who have content knowledge, they're able to pick it up because they have the background knowledge. But if you don't have content knowledge, if you don't acquire it, you fall further and further behind. And what else does that affect? Your ability to think critically about things because you, you don't have the background knowledge in a variety of, uh, in a variety of subject areas. And so the, 
you come into grade one, and we're going to spend, you know, we spend lots of time on the screen looking things up, doing projects interdisciplinary. The students who are poor from low SES homes are the ones that are going to be missing out the most of the content they actually need to acquire. Um, a second research study, this is by Keith uh, Stanovich, and the article is titled uh, Matthew Effects in Reading, Some Consequences of Individual Differences in the Acquisition of Literacy. Now, here's an, it's, even the title is kind of interesting because not all of you <coughs> may have the background knowledge in what is the Matthew effect. Well, it's actually a reference to a, uh, a biblical principle uh, where, uh, uh, where, where in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus in one of his parables says that uh, uh, to those who have much, more will be given. To those who have little, what little they have will be taken away. This is true of reading ability and, and background knowledge and all these things. Here's the key finding from this Reading Research Quarterly article. Children with inadequate vocabularies who read slowly and without enjoyment read less, and as a result, have slower development of vocabulary knowledge, which inhibits further growth in reading ability. So if you don't like to read because you're not able to read, because your vocabulary is too low and it's too hard to read, you're going to read less, and therefore, those who have little what little they have ends up being taken away. It's the Matthew effect. It's a well-known psychological principle, and uh, it's, it's even best understood if you know sort of where the principle came from. But it's an important one to consider, because, again, thinking about who's coming to our schools, everyone's not coming from the same place. Some people are coming with advantages. We need to do whatever we can to try to correct uh, those differences. We want to equalize. Uh, a third research study. This is by uh, uh, Sonnerson, Baker, and uh, Garrett. And in this article, titled An Analysis of Academic Progress of Children Participating in the Core Knowledge Preschool Program in Baltimore County Head Starts and Centers, uh, basically what this uh, they did was they evaluated a series of schools, in this case in Baltimore, Maryland, that had implemented a program called Core Knowledge. And I'm going to talk about this more in just a little bit. This, uh, and it's basically a content-rich, very detailed program that was developed by E.D. Hirsch, Jr., in conjunction with a whole lot of other education experts, and that has been implemented in schools uh, primarily in the United States, but also a few in Canada, even other, under, other schools around the world, where basically what these schools are doing is they're putting it into practice, where, you know what, let's get some serious content, especially at the early grades. And the key finding of this research study, the results of this evaluation show that the core knowledge preschool sequence as implemented in the Baltimore County Head Start Centers is successful in providing low-income children with the skills and knowledge that children of their age across the country are expected to master. In other words, what this study did is it compared schools that implemented the core knowledge sequence, the, this detailed content knowledge, the students from low socioeconomic status have benefited significantly because now they were able uh, to keep up with the rest of the students because now they were acquiring the background knowledge that they needed to that they need to acquire. Again, content is absolutely important. Now, let me talk a little bit about a particular school, uh, and this is called PS124 in Queens, New York, um, also known as Oswald A. Church Elementary School. Uh, it's a school that is in a low socioeconomic status neighborhood. Um, vast majority of students qualify for lunch program funding. I think it's a 97% of the students are visible minorities. Uh, so we're not talking about a, you know, rich school in, ter- in a suburban area. This is a, this is a school we're working with students who are coming from disadvantaged backgrounds. And they, a number of years ago, a little over a decade ago, decided to implement the core knowledge program. You know, the, this program where they 
put in place specific content and made it the focus of their school. And I'm going to quote from an article called Knowledge is Power, written by Valerie Lewis, who's the former principal of the school. She retired only a couple of years ago. And she writes about her experience with implementing core knowledge. And this article, if you're interested, is uh, I didn't put this one on the board. It's in the American School Board Journal, April 2016. The American School Board Journal, again, another pretty mainline source. Here's what Valerie Lewis has to say. I'm just going to quote from part of the article. Let's talk about real results. Not politicians calling for 100% proficiency in public while manipulating cut scores and passing rates in private. Not schools pulling some students in while pushing others out. Not administrators and educators, understandably but regrettably, devoting weeks of instructional time to test preparation. I'm talking about real results that develop students into successful lifelong learners. At PSMS 124 in Queens, New York, a K-8 neighborhood school where I was principal until I retired in 2014, we got real results. We even won a Dispelling the Myth Award from the Education Trust in 2007. Our test results show that we closed the achievement gap under No Child Left Behind. At our Universal Free Lunch School, our students, every subgroup, always made adequate yearly progress. In 2014, on New York's tough new Common Core Aligned Test, we outperformed the New York City average by 3 percentage points in English language arts and 5 percentage points in math. We did even better when you compare apples to apples. For economically disadvantaged students, which is the entire enrollment of PS124, we outperformed the city by 8 percentage points in English and 8 percentage points in math. The first step in our journey was developing a new content-rich curriculum based on the core knowledge sequence. Using the new curriculum as a foundation, we increased teacher collaboration and student engagement, success built on success. With a homeless shelter two blocks away, student mobility used to be high. But after core knowledge was introduced in 1999-2000, parents went to great lengths to keep their children in our school. The core knowledge sequence developed by professor and author E.D. Hirsch in the 1990s is a grade-by-grade outline of essential content and literacy skills, literature, science, geography, world and American history, the arts, music, and mathematics. It differs from other curricula in that it's based on what children should know, not what they should be able to do. It served as our framework for bringing dramatically richer and more rigorous academics into our classrooms. And it ensured that what we taught in each grade built on what students had already learned. While at first we feared that the content would be too rigorous for us as educators and for our students, we soon discovered that all of us loved being challenged. Major historical events, scientific discoveries, and works of art are inherently interesting. With our new curriculum, teachers and children loved learning. At our implementation of core knowledge deepened, achievement soared. On the New York State Social Studies exam, around 90% of our 5th and 8th graders are proficient. Our science results for grades 4 and 8 were also impressive. Even better, 100% of our 8th graders passed the Living uh, Environment Regents exam. During those first three years, we saw many important signs that we were on the right track. One of the most important is that the entire school became connected. Teachers began to communicate with one another, connecting on a professional level, supporting one another as they learned the content and collaboratively planning lessons. They became risk takers, honing their craft. The most remarkable confirmation that building our content-rich curriculum is worth the effort was the students' reactions. Very early on, they began asking more questions and even discussing the content among themselves. Our school went on a 15-year journey of seeking knowledge. 
Throughout these years, the hard work of the staff, students, and parents was evidence in the academic accomplishments of the students and the professional growth of the teachers. Our content-rich educational approach and our outgoing improvement ongoing improvement process became stable. Many students made an analogy between the fountain of youth and the core knowledge sequence, saying that what they were learning would make them smarter and keep them young because they would have the wisdom of the ages to guide and energize them. And again, that's the testimony of a real-life principal who focused on content, focused on knowledge in a school where virtually all the students are poor. And those are the types of results that they experienced. So if this catches your interest, you know, in terms of the things that I'm talking about, there are some great resources out there, and I'm going to list a few of them for you. Many excellent books, articles, and websites that provide support to teachers and administrators and board members and such who wish to learn more about the importance of content knowledge. Unfortunately, I'm going to be pretty direct here, much of the educational literature currently distributed to teachers lacks a proper balance in this issue. The reality is, is that we tend to only hear one side of this. I suspect that for at least some of you, these research studies I'm citing here are probably new because they're not what are focused on in our education colleges and faculties. That's not the focus. Uh, I remember going through my teacher training. I never heard about any of this stuff. I had to learn it myself. Uh, and I, so this is the reality that we have to contend with. So here are some recommended resources. And again, a few of these I brought with me. You're welcome to take a look at afterwards if you want. Um, this book I highly recommend by Edie Hirsch, his most recent one called Why Knowledge Matters, Rescuing Our Children from Failed Educational Theories, published just last year. It's his uh, organization, the Core Knowledge Foundation, that provides the template for a content-rich curriculum. So again, there's the website, coreknowledge.org, if you want to learn more about this, where they have the research studies on there to back up more of this, and you can see uh, what, uh, uh, what is involved. Edith Hirsch has written a number of books that, uh, that, uh, that touch on this, that, uh, that make the case for specific content knowledge. And I should mention as well that in one of his books, he talks about this question of, you know, is he promoting conservative educational ideas? Is this a partisan thing? No. In fact, he describes himself as a liberal, and he, he's on the left of the political spectrum. Why is he promoting core knowledge and content? Because he cares for low socioeconomic students. He says that everyone who is a liberal on the left of the political spectrum, you should be the strongest advocates of this. If you want to help the poor, this is what uh, this is one of the things that we need to do. Uh, here's a second book that I recommend, John Hattie and Gregory Yates, Visible Learning and the Science of How We Learn. Now, the good news is that John Hattie's name is used somewhat in educational circles, particularly his book, Visible Learning and Visible Learning for Teachers, where he takes a look at a variety of different teaching strategies and methods, and he, he evaluates the research study evidence to, in, to show which ones are most effective in such some great books he's written. This book doesn't get as much play, uh, and it's too bad because I think this is his best book. It's co-authored with a cognitive psychologist, and what he does is they take a look at concepts such as content load, the idea that there's only a certain amount of information you can put into your brain, at least in the part which is active, your working memory, and so if you can't only put so much in there, well, you need to have more in your long-term memory. That's why memorizing math facts are so important, because you can't do it. You can't do advanced mathematics if you're constantly having to pull out your calculator. Oh, what's five times six? I don't know. Well, you've just lost doing the question. No wonder you can't do algebra, because you don't have the basics in place. And again, Hattie and Yates make it pretty clear uh, that the science backs up the need for specific content, specific skills, working sequentially. And I haven't really talked much about math here, but let me assure you, you need direct instruction in math 
math textbooks like Math Makes Sense, if you're using those books, they don't, it doesn't make sense. Like, no wonder it's, uh, it's all confusing and convoluted. Here's another book that I recommend, uh, Daniel T. Willingham. He is a cognitive psychologist at the University of Virginia. He's written a number of great books. This one is very easy to read. It's called Why Don't Students Like School? A Cognitive Scientist Answers Questions About How the Mind Works and What It Means for the Classroom. So this is a great book and uh, because he uh, puts it in a way that's relatively easy for everyone to understand. He has a website as well, DanielWillingham.net, I believe it is. He also writes uh, uh, regularly for the American Federation of Teachers Journal. Uh, so he, he's, he writes, com- like his, his research is K-12 to education. That is his focus. Uh, another book that I would recommend by Mike Schmoker, Focus. Elevating the Essentials to Radically Improve Student Learning. This book was published in 2011. Another great book. And, you know, and, and Schmoker, he has a great way of writing because he says, I, he, he, he know, he says, here's how you improve student learning. You have content-rich curriculum, sound lessons, and purposeful reading and writing in every subject. Do those three things and you've got some remarkable learning happening. Problem is, is that we don't focus on those things and we focus on everything else. We've got every initiative under the sun that we're trying to focus on and we're trying to do, you know, and, and again, all of these are worthwhile causes, but it obviously takes time away from those essentials that we need to focus on. And so hence why he calls it about elevating the essentials that we need. What we learn matters. Content matters. Sound lessons matter. Clear explanations matter. And real reading and writing in each subject. Uh, another good book, Daisy Christodoulou, uh, Seven Myths About Education, a relatively short book where she addresses some of the most common myths, such as facts prevent understanding and, and, and such. And again, in simple, clear language, explains why, uh, uh, why, these, are, uh, why these are myths. And then I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this other book. Um, the, you might recognize one of the names there. Uh, it's, it's called uh, What's Wrong With Their Schools and How We Can Fix Them. It's a book that I co-authored. Uh, I would recommend it. It is a book, however, I didn't put it first on the list for a reason. It was published in 2010, and I have to be honest, I, I like it. I obviously still recommend it to people, but there's a lot of stuff that's happened since 2010 that, uh, in terms of the, the information out there, and frankly, even a lot of it that I've learned since then, that I would love to incorporate into this book. So it's still a good book in terms of, it's very readable. It's, each chapter stands on its own, lots of scenarios in it. If you're a teacher and you read it and you see the scenarios, I think you'll, I think you'll see that it was actually written by a real teacher. Uh, my co-authors, Rodney Clifton and John Long, are both former education professors at the University of Manitoba. So there are some education professors who agree with me, uh, those two, and I think there's a few others, but uh, um, I, I will fully acknowledge that my views on this are a minority in education professor circles. Um, and uh, Rod and John would be the first to tell you as well that that was their experience after some 30 years teaching in the Faculty of Education at the University of Manitoba, that they were very much outliers in terms of the things that they advocated. So what are some of my concluding thoughts? And then I'm going to open it up to, uh, uh, to questions. Remember that the key ideas being promoted by the 21st century learning movement are not new. It's, we love new things. You know, it's, it's, we just, we want to be on the cutting edge. You know, who wants to be old and outdated? Well, 21st century learning uh, movement, it's old and it's outdated because it's based on ideas that have been proven that they just don't work that well. But it gets repackaged and recycled and renamed and around and around it goes. So remember, these aren't new ideas that we're talking about. These are old ideas. These are all old ideas. Second concluding thought, while content knowledge is often dismissed as secondary importance, the reality is that knowledge is just as important as ever. 
And again, there are people who will give lip service to, well, yeah, of course, you need contact knowledge. But in practice, you know, when, when if they're, for example, instructing a group of education students in, in the university and such, it, it's the the criticism of content knowledge is pretty clear. That you know what, it's the bunch of facts approach to education. If you ever read Alfie Cohn, um, uh, that's about as far away from my thinking as you could possibly get. So if you want sort of the ultimate contrast, go read his stuff. If you need an antidote to everything I'm saying here, I suppose, um, because he would disagree with everything that I'm outlining. So, uh, but I believe content knowledge is not secondary importance; it's primary importance. You need content knowledge, and it needs to be specific and outlined. Content knowledge is essential for reading comprehension. It makes critical thinking possible, and it empowers low socioeconomic status students. So you need it for reading, you need it to think critically, and you need it if you want to uh, empower students from low socioeconomic status. And so uh, there are good reasons for teachers to provide, directly provide substantial content knowledge to their students. And so I am not saying that the teacher should stand in front every single class and just recite. This is one of those things that, that gets stereotyped. Um, I don't do the same thing every single class that I teach. There's things that I switch around. And there are even some of the new methods that I will use in moderation on occasion. I'm actually uh, not quite as traditional as you might think. But I am quite focused on uh, the importance of making sure students are acquiring specific content knowledge. Because if they don't have that knowledge, I know that there is going to be a deficit there. So I want to thank you for your attention. I'll open up to questions in a second. Uh, there's some more, again, my contact information that I'm happy to uh, stay after and answer more questions. And uh, But, of course, there's my email, website, Twitter, all of that. So so let me open it up to uh, some uh, comments and questions, and I'll make sure that we close at uh, at 3.30. And then those who want to talk to me at more length afterwards are welcome to. I'll, I'll hang around. So uh, does anyone have any questions you'd like to ask? Yes. Agree with you and disagree with you. Hmm? I don't think just because kids have rich parents means that they're all going to be seeing teaching the kids just as much as I don't believe that just if they come from poor that they're not being taught 